Hey there, my name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce Detoxicity, which is the podcast that you were just about to listen to. I hope that you have been listening and enjoying uh, for the entire time that we've been doing this. If you are new, welcome. If you are a listener of Longstanding, welcome again and thank you. Um, I appreciate the fact that you listen to this podcast. If you listen and enjoy, please feel free to leave a comment. Please feel free to rate on iTunes or any other podcast platforms that have the ability to rate. And please subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, I would love it. It's not a requirement, but I would love it if you followed me on social media. I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph, that is T-I-S-M-I-K-E-J-O-S-E-P-H. And I'm on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I don't need to spell that out for anybody. I'm also on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. But you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to be on the show or you know somebody who'd be a good fit for an interview on the show, feel free to reach out to me via either of those two platforms, or you can drop me an old-fashioned email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Once again, that is detoxpod at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, y'all. For this episode, we're going to travel out to Colorado to meet up with Ron Doyle. Ron is the creative director of Waterday Media, a multimedia production and communications company that specializes in everything from web development to podcast production. Podcasting is actually how Ron and I came into contact with one another. He's the producer of a podcast called The Grolic Saves the World. It is one of my favorite podcasts these days, and during our conversation, we touch on how he got tied in with the three fantastic comedians that the podcast is focused on. But podcasting is just a teeny tiny bit of what Ron and I discuss. Uh, among the many things that I found out was that Ron was something of an academic prodigy, giving me some serious Doogie Hauser vibes, and graduated from high school before most people can legally drive. That might be a factor in his perfectionist tendencies, which he is still learning to rein in. We also cover the highs and uncertainties of parenting. We compare notes on hitting our 40s, and Ron somewhat sheepishly admits to being a bit of a hoarder. Everything from emotional maturity to the five-second rule is here. Enjoy my conversation with Ron Doyle. My name is Ron Doyle. I am a podcast producer and self-employed freelancer for the last 10 years. I live in Denver, Colorado. I produce a podcast, The Grolic Saves the World. I produce a storytelling show called The Narrators. I'm the tech and venues manager for High Plains Comedy Festival. And when it exists, I'm the tech director for Dink, which is the Denver Independent Comic and Arts Expo. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. I guess as a freelancer, you have to have uh, an arm and several different things to keep keep everything afloat. Always, always doing something. Yeah, I've been freelancing since 2008, and I've always just proceeded as the way opens. I had a web development company for about five years with my wife. Did that for a while, shifted over. I do editing work. I do web design. I do regular design. I do podcast production audio production, event production, all sorts of things. So, yeah, whatever the world will let me get into, that's that's what I'm doing. Pretty cool. So one thing I have been actually been thinking about lately is essentially working for myself as opposed to working a nine-to-five corporate job. Uh-huh. What has been the benefit, because you've been doing it for a while, obviously, of working for yourself? Well, I, I actually quit my job to become a stay-at-home dad, which feels appropriate for your podcast. In 2008, uh, we found out that my oldest daughter is deaf, and we decided to do cochlear implants for her. She had a huge bevy of appointments that she needed to go through, therapy and sign language instruction, and 
a deaf educator and all these different things. So my wife and I realized one of us was going to have to quit their job to do it. I was a high school teacher at the time, and I ended up quitting my job just simply because of health insurance. Her work had a better health insurance plan. Our second uh, kid was born at the same time as well, so I became a stay-at-home dad. We had a budget shortfall of $300 a month in our family budget, and so I started freelancing, writing for magazines to fill that little gap, yada, yada, yada. Time passes on, and I fell in with an online group of writers who discovered I was tech-savvy. They asked me for help. One of them asked me for help with their website. Next thing I know, I'm running my own web development business for the next four or five years. So I would say going out on your own, it's it was very easy for me because I had a sugar mama. I had financial support. I had a person who could give me that platform to where I could take risks and experiment with things. I could get rejected again and again and again and again, and it never hurt because it wasn't a high-stakes situation. That's how it was for a, a few years until the web design business grew big enough that my wife actually quit her job, came to work with me, and then we worked together for years on that. And it became more intense at that point, for sure, because then it was all on us to make the bills happen. And I got to tell you, it's a feast or famine situation with freelancing. You say yes to everything at the beginning because you are trying to just pay some bills. And eventually you reach a point, if things are going well, where you can be a little more exclusive, you can say, no, this is my rate. This is what I can do. This is when I can do it. This is how much time I have available. It gets a little easier. But yeah, I mean, gosh, I don't know. I I love working from home. I've been doing it now for 13 years. So I, I can't imagine ever working for just one person, ever one company or one place ever again. Sure. People asked me whenever I quit my job, they're like, well, aren't you worried about not having a job? And I'm like, well, I can never be fired. I never have to worry about getting laid off. If something goes away, I can just go find another thing. There's always more out there to be had. I think the world has shifted towards this sort of mentality as far as business anyway. And it's worked, it's worked okay for me. I have a main client that takes up about 30 hours of my work week. And then I have other smaller clients that fill up the gaps. But um, I also work just constantly. I can't <laughs> not work. So yeah, I, I like to make stuff. I like to keep going. I like to keep doing things. So I can't help myself. It's a compulsion. Yeah, I'm a workaholic. Yes, correct. But it also That's sounds what I am. like you what love I am. what you do. I have fun. Uh, when I was a high school teacher, I had everything uh, that I wanted out of a professional life all in one package. I had the thing that paid the bills. I had the thing where I felt like I was making a difference in the world, making the world a better place. And I had the thing that challenged me creatively all in one one tidy package. I was working for this little tiny at-risk school. At-risk was the word we used back then. Sure. Now they would say youth in crisis or alternative. I had about 100 students. And when I first started there, most of the kids were court ordered to be at the school. Oh. And it was super challenging and engaging. And I got to teach every subject under the sun, which was very fun. But when I left that job, everything sort of splintered apart. And now I have some jobs that I do just for the money. I have some jobs that I do for the creative outlet. I, I have some jobs that I do for the, like getting to contribute to the world and to the community. It's sort of a little more splintered than it used to be, but yeah, I'm still happy with the way things are working right now. Right on. Yeah. Obviously, being in education, there's a really big helping the community aspect in that. 
Has that always mm-hmm. been important to you, doing good things for the world? And if so, when did that hit you? When did that become something that's important to you? That's been my entire life. My my parents were both civil servants. My mom worked for uh, the state of New Mexico in the income support division. She worked in the food stamps office, basically, uh, welfare check, welfare office. My dad was a sheriff's deputy. I know that's... <laughs> Cops are not popular right now, but back in the day, I, I like to think that my father was one of the good ones. I remember big, terrifying men coming to our door and knocking on the door to thank him for how he treated them. Oh, wow. So I feel good about my father's legacy in that regard. But they both raised me to always be thinking about how you could be contributing to the world and how to make the world a better place. So it's always been a focus of mine ever since I was a little tiny kid. And I've had a few opportunities to, to make it happen. My wife and I met on a volunteer trail building project. So it's always been sort of in my DNA to go out and help people and do things, for sure. Ron, that is so um, wholesome. I'm very Ned Flanders. <laughs> I'm very Ned Flanders. If you look at it on paper, not so much if you start looking in the shadows, but <laughs> but yes, it is. Yeah. I, When I was a kid, I wanted to be a teacher. And then as I got mm-hmm. older into my teenage years, I befriended some of my teachers, which may not have been incredibly ethical, but nevertheless... <laughs> Once I discovered, A, what teachers go through, and B, what teachers get paid, I was like, maybe this isn't for me. As someone who worked as a teacher, and as a teacher in a a sort of uncommon situation, was there a point when you were ever like, I'm burned out, or I don't want to do this anymore? I mean, ultimately, you left. But I I feel like, you know, the way you're telling it to me, that had less to do with you being burnt out as a teacher and more with circumstantial family stuff. Right. I I was a teacher for seven and a half years. I fell into the job just totally at random to knock off the Ned Flanders view of me. I actually started with the school because I needed community service hours. I met one of the teachers at the school at a birthday party. He spent the whole night talking to him about the school, what it was like. Me and my girlfriend at the time, we both started volunteering for the school. Very quickly, they realized I was someone who was capable and educated, and I fell into substituting for a math class at the end of a semester, and the next thing I knew, I had a job. And it was my entire life. I was very into the identity of being a teacher. Financially, it was not a lucrative endeavor at all. I remember getting offered $23,000 a year. And I was stoked. I was excited about it. But it was just not not very much money in hindsight. What year was this? This is early 2000s. I remember one of my first experiences as a teacher was seeing 9-11 happening on a day going into work. That was the very beginning. I left in 2008. So yeah, not as much money as it should have been mm-hmm. for the time. But it was a work of passion. It did pay the bills, fortunately, but I was doing it because I loved it and I, I thought it was important, especially the school where I worked was a really fascinating place. We were doing things differently than traditional school. It was a charter school, working with kids who they thought they were going to drop out. They thought they were not going to make it. They thought they were not going to survive their lives until 21. So to see them get anywhere in life felt like a huge success. Did I get burned out? Oh, absolutely. The great thing about teaching is they give you little breaks. I would be ready to be done, and then I would get a week off. And (laughs) by the end of the week off, I was restored and ready to go back. But I'd been promoted to an administration position when my first kid was born. And it was definitely a a challenge for me. It was hard. Being a, a new parent was very tough, juggling that with the job. 
I was also commuting a very long ways every day, about 40 miles to my other job. So I was pretty burned out at the point that I left, but not because of what it was. It was more my life circumstances. Sure. And do you feel in your current situation working for yourself, like do you, do you feel like you ever get burned out? Do you ever feel like, okay, this is too much. Maybe I took on a little too many pleasure projects or I took on too many practical projects or how do you manage that? Oh, Mike, I want to quit everything <laughs> I do every day. Every day I ask myself the question, do I really want to keep doing this? Is this something I actually want to continue? All the time. I think it's valuable uh, to go through that exercise, to contemplate what would your life look like if you were doing something totally different. I tend to stick. I, I'm a serial monogamist, and I am very good at committing, so I don't typically quit things, but I think about it a lot always thinking about what what would it be like if I let the thing go. And the few times in my life where I've been working on a big project that was consuming a lot of time, even if I loved it, if it was starting to be too much and I quit it, I never regretted leaving. So in those cases, that's always been a good good reminder to me that I can leave. There was a podcast that I did. The very first podcast, we're actually talking uh, the day after my 10th anniversary in podcast. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, yeah, I was deleting some old emails the other day and I found the very first podcast that I produced. That podcast is one that I, I left because my life was just getting too busy. It was too packed. I was producing another podcast. I was working a job. I was running the business. I had the two kids and I just had to cut back somewhere. And that was the place. So I do that with, with all my projects. I, I'm always, should I leave? Should I quit? Should I stop doing this? I don't, I don't know if it's being burned out. I think it's a, a way of release, relieving pressure to contemplate something different. And also just because I, I like to proceed as the way opens. And if something else seems to be opening up, I, I like to go in that direction. How about you? How do you deal with that? Because it sounds like you're in that phase right now, contemplating something different. Yeah, I have worked my corporate job for almost 17 years now, been at the same place. And I, I don't know that there are many growth opportunities. And there's something in me where I produce two podcasts and a radio show. And there's plenty of stuff that I do in other spaces that makes me feel like I, I could do something entrepreneurial at, at some point. And mm -hmm. I'm not getting any younger. So I feel like that will have to happen right. sooner rather than later. But it's hard to leave something comfortable. And I think about doing other things all the time, whether it's a different job, a different apartment. It's easy to think that the next thing will be better, but there's also a part of me that is very scared of what the next thing might be or scared of what the consequences of the next thing might be. So it's weird because sometimes I think I end up staying in situations longer than I need to. Mm -hmm. And then other sure. times I think I leave things too quickly without really getting to like hear them out. Right. Now, do you feel like that's a thing that, and I'll answer this question for myself <laughs> as well. Do you feel like this is a thing that you do as a man? Do you think your role as a man in society that you feel like you have to have the job, you have to have the stable thing because that's what the world expects of you? I have two kids, so I stay committed to things when they're stable because I want that stability for my family, and I don't take as many risks as I once did because of my family. And I definitely have that stereotypical fatherly mentality of that I've got to have the stable job. My wife has a great job. She gets just as much money as me. She has supported me for years so whenever I was the stay-at-home parent. So all that is 
completely false. It's just a thing that's in my it's head that I think about. I don't know for me if it's a male thing. I'm single and I have no kids. So I think for me it's I need to stay alive thing. It's, yeah, it's right? a hmm. I have no fallback option thing. And I, I don't know. I've never thought of that way of thinking as particularly masculine. Work, yeah, work is not a masculine identity thing yeah. for you. Yeah, you know, my folks were, were immigrants. They, they're from the old school where, like, you started a job and you worked that job until they gave you a cake or whatever the hell it is, and they sent yeah. you on your way. I'm 45 years old, and I've had four jobs in my entire life. Yeah. So I'm not a jump-around kind of person. And mm-hmm. the thought of working for myself is scary. Sure, sure. Uh, but I'm also... Because it's a, it's a sudden a lot of jumping around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think the stability is comforting to me and there's a part of me that still again has that like old school mentality where it's like you don't leave a job you stay there until you retire that thing is still kind of stuck in my head right yeah my my mom literally worked herself to the grave till she she quit she left her job about three or four weeks before she died so uh, my grand i completely relate it yeah yeah Where's your family from originally? Uh, my family is from the, the Caribbean. They're from Aruba and, and uh, the Dominican Republic and, and several of the islands. And mm-hmm. emigrated yeah. here in the uh, 70s. So I'm actually the first American-born member of my entire family. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah. That's wild. Yes, That's yeah. amazing. A crazy. A crazy. My parents, they both grew up in very rural New Mexico. We, we talked a little bit before the podcast how you're fascinated by these sorts of stories. So my dad grew up on a 13,000-acre cattle ranch. He learned how to swim in a water trough underneath a windmill. My mother was the youngest of 12 kids who all lived on Homestead Act land that my grandfather got in northern New Mexico. Because even in the early 1900s, there was still land to just be had in New Mexico that people didn't want. He built a lean-to. They lived off of squirrel and deer and raised their own chickens. They hand-dug irrigation lines for themselves to grow crops. My mom made all of her own clothes until she was in high school. She didn't have plumbing or electricity until she was in high school. And that was in the 1960s. So I feel like my parents, they definitely raised me old school as well. They were raising me like a full two generations back from how everybody else around me was being raised. So that work ethic thing and that you do the job and you stick with it um, was definitely instilled in me from them, for sure. I'm wondering, now that I hear that, how 2021 Ron how that very old school upbringing still resonates with with you now. Do you have traits or qualities that still sort of originate from the fact that your parents had such a a rural upbringing? Oh, yeah. I I have a poor person's mentality (laughs) at all times. I, I don't waste food. My friends make fun of me for eating off the ground. I don't, you know, just five seconds. Well, this is like I found it. (laughs) <laughs> and it looks fresh. It looks fine. I know you made the face. I know. I I tell people this. I know it's bad. It's terrible. Like a freegan. I have that thing going on. My wife also, she grew up in a little town in Kansas of 800 people. This fall, we were out there picking apples, you know, next to the creek by our house and picking pears from the median of a street because that's just... It's free food out there. You never know where the next meal is going to come from. I save things. I'm a hoarder. I definitely have that Depression-era mentality of 
this thing somehow has value. I can find a way to give it value. I might need it someday, so I'm going to hang on to it, even when I know it's not something I need. You got to give me an example here of something that you hold on to or that you have held on to that objectively has no value whatsoever. Oh, I mean, electronics are the the classic example. I have old pieces of electronics that are never going to be used again. I have cables that have pins that are never going to connect to any modern computer, but I hang on to them just in case I might need it. But also, I'll recycle plastic containers, I'm, and I'll hang on to old papers just in case I need to use them. It's all of the things you can imagine. My father's family... They had their cattle ranch. They had to sell it in the early 2000s because of drought. And when they auctioned off the place, my, gra my, my grandfather and my uncle, who ran the ranch, had amassed, I don't know, 600 coffee cans that were just stacked up. They were ready to be used. And they used them for things like cutting out the metal and using it to patch things. They would use them to carry stuff around. There's always that sort of... Maybe I can use this for something. I think I have that mentality. I, I think I'm pretty resourceful. It's a little bit of a Boy Scout thing. It's a little bit of a fear that I'm going to be poor. The pandemic was fun for my family because we're like, oh, we get to switch on this survival mode. <laughs> we get to switch. It, I shouldn't say fun. It was terrible and horrific, but I'm trying to put a positive spin sure. on it. The very beginning of it was fun. They were like, oh, we get to play the survivalist game a little bit. We immediately went out and bought 50 pounds of whole wheat flour and <laughs> just all right we're gonna hunker down and we're gonna be pioneer people for a little while so yeah it's there it's there and, and your kids are buying into my kids are like a mix because they grew up in denver they grew up in the city they're definitely cityfied in a little way but we take them camping and they still see the way me and my wife operate they definitely see how we we function they understand the mentality they don't always go along with it. There's no food waste in our house. We were watching some documentary last night talking about how food waste was a major problem in the United States. <laughs> and it was just like, not in this house. We don't let anything go to waste. So, yeah, they're a little different, but they've grown up in the city. I'm not sure where that's going to lead them because now they're telling us they're both teenagers now. And they're starting to say that they wish they'd grown up in a small town. Really? So, yeah, which is, is fascinating. They get to go visit family members in smaller places. So I think that that becomes a sort of idyllic pastoral idea to them. It's very romantic because every time they're in the country, they're on vacation. Right. So they think that's just what the country is, a good, good relaxed time <laughs> with feasts with family all the time. They don't realize that all the boring stuff that they do when they're back at home would happen there, only there would be less to do <laughs> when they're done. Right. So... I don't know. We'll see how they pan out. They're still becoming their own people at this point. What's what's that like? I, I often wonder this as someone who doesn't have children. What's it like to see two people that you <laughs> created become their own like individual, independent human beings? It is rewarding and terrifying and... Um, frustrating and fulfilling and it's the hardest most incredible thing I've ever done I'm screwing it up every day I'm not doing as well as I would like but ultimately when they were younger it was me trying to mold them into what I hoped they would be or at least give them all the things that I wanted them to have in their lives so they could become the best possible whoever they were going to be taking them to the museums and 
exposing them to, you know, different cultures and traveling with them and having them try different foods and talking to them about different cultures and teaching them all these weird things. And eventually there came a point where I realized, oh, my job is, as a parent at this point is just to recognize who they are and, and accept it and, and love them unconditionally no matter who they become because it's not under my control anymore. I have no power over it. The outside world has a much stronger sway than I do. The gravitational pull of their social circles and their teachers and the world at large is much stronger than than me, the single parent. And that's been hard. It's a little bit like watching somebody fall out of love with you, hmm. a little bit. It's a slow, slow process, sort of chipping away and just hoping that what I did before is gonna be enough that they're gonna be okay later on. The cool thing is they're both incredible people, so it doesn't matter. They're gonna turn out well, irrespective of me. I don't think my helicopter parenting when they were little is gonna make them better. I think if anything, it made them worse for a little while. And I've had to undo a lot of the things that I did early on where I was when I was trying too hard. Trying too hard is a big challenge for me, for sure. In general, um, you're saying? Yeah, just in general. I think trying too hard can be a thing. I always want everything to be perfect. I want it to be right. And I can go so far that I can break the thing that I love <laughs> by trying too hard, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you catch yourself in process or... At the end of whatever situation, are you always like, well, damn, maybe if I'd have eased back a little bit, this would have gone differently or gone better? Both. Both. I've had moments in my life where I, I recognized that I was trying too hard and I was able to dial it back and have, have more fun and just sort of relax. I always feel better when I stop trying so hard <laughs> and things go better when I stop trying so hard. But sometimes... When something's important to you, you want to give it everything you've got, especially with family, with creative endeavors. I'm always trying to push what I can do and try to do better. Sometimes that can become a an exercise in futility. Sure. You start having no returns from how hard you're pushing to make something work. Yeah. What do you do to make yourself less uptight about stuff like that? Hmm. I don't know how I do it. I have to just remind myself that nobody likes people who try <laughs> too hard because you can smell the desperation on someone. And so I, I try to remind myself that there's a difference between trying too hard and doing enough or doing your best. And I'm getting better at catching myself about it, but it's almost seasonal. I got to have one flare up of just getting obsessed over a thing and going too far. I think that one mistake that I'll make per year is what helps me chill out for the rest of the time. It's got to be frustrating to work with me, though, because people see it. People see me just hammering on the thing, just working really hard. And everybody else wants me to just settle down. That so, was kind of my next question. Like, are people in your life like Ron chill? Yeah. Oh, yep. <laughs> yeah absolutely everybody everybody around me yeah if i start pushing too hard that's actually what helps me calm down too is seeing other people reacting to it when it's just me if it's my own thing that i'm doing alone i will obsess and i will just work and fiddle and tinker forever and ever and ever i will always try to make the thing just a little bit better because i have nobody else to tell me it's good enough you're done you can stop now right. or you're pushing too hard you can stop now 
So having external validation or external feedback is always helpful for me as well. Sure. It's tricky though, because thinking about the theme of your podcast, the the role of men in today's society has changed, or at least the perception of it. And I'm trying to be sensitive to that as well. That's actually been very useful for me. Having my, my privilege kicked uh, a little bit has been healthy. It's been very good for me. It's let me step back. It's let me shut the fuck up and let other people uh, step forward and have a voice in a way that I probably wouldn't have done before because I just was not aware of it in the same way. Right. It's it's interesting to see people become conscious of, of their own privilege. And mm-hmm. um, the whole take space, make space thing which I'm still kind of wrapping my head around, to see people adopting that is is really heartening. I guess there's two things here. There's being secure in your masculinity, which is one thing. And then there's also mm-hmm. sort of realizing that the world around you is comprised of all of these different people and different qualities in people, and that all of these things are on a spectrum. How and when did you kind of become aware of that. When I was a teacher, we worked with a lot of different kids in a lot of different situations, and we did all sorts of interesting trainings. And I remember, actually, I read this book, Power, Privilege, and Difference okay. by Alan G. Johnson, white guy writing about privilege, because <laughs> that's what they used Surprising. to do. But I mean, that book was written in, oh gosh, I'm looking at the date here. It was written in the 90s, I believe. And I read it in the early 2000s as part of a, a training I was doing with the school. And I was in my 20s. And I was an arrogant little shit. And when it started getting into the places of talking about white privilege and male privilege, I bucked. I I resisted so hard at that point in my life because I grew up poor and because my parents were poor. And so I had these, I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the language at the time, but I did have some intersectionality in my life that I felt was enough that I was exempt from all these things that everybody's talking about. And it took some very hard conversations with, thankfully, the the folks who worked at the school with me, the headmasters of the school, they were very wise and older and more mature about it. And they, they had patience with me. We battled for sure about these things. But through that argument, it cracked open that idea for me. That was 15 to, no, it's got to be more, it's closer to 20 years ago now. You were ahead of the- That I went- went went through that process so so when it started happening in the mainstream i i felt more prepared and more accepting of it and it, it was a lot easier to go through with along with everybody else and I, f- I felt like i was able to talk about it in a in a calmer way as individuals it's very hard to separate out everybody has struggles everybody has challenges we are all people we are all human beings i don't think the 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 generalization of the rules are true for everybody it's undeniable the fact that i i was able to just quit my job and my wife was in a privileged position of having a stable job that she could then support the entire family and i could be a stay-at-home parent and start my own business that's not a thing that's accessible to everyone the things that I've been able to do, the things that people have said yes to me to do are opportunities that I probably received without realizing I was getting it because I had this unspoken advantage. And I, I try to remember that every time I get an opportunity. I try to remind myself of that, that I'm getting it. I have friends remind, I, I try very hard to use that 
to the advantage of other people in my life. I try to bring their voices out when I can. But it's a constant learning process. It's a constant learning process. It absolutely is. And as far as my masculinity, I don't think I'm secure. Not in the slightest. Vulnerable statement that I feel like so many guys are afraid to make. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to admit that they're vulnerable or that they have weaknesses. It's not a thing that we're really encouraged to no. do as kids. We're encouraged to be tough. There was a there was a documentary also that we really focused on as far as masculinity called Tough Guys, G-U-I-S-E. I don't know if you've ever heard no, of this. I older, older thing, very fascinating documentary. If you ever want to watch it, feels like a great, uh, great topic for your podcast. It, it lines up very well. It, it went through how pop culture is portraying masculinity in a particular way. For our generation, you and me, I'm I'm 41, you're 45. We're pretty, we're we're pretty close. Yeah. We're right at the t- tail end of Gen X. We were showed masculinity in this very, very toxic way in the in the early 90s. Um, the, the guns in movies started getting bigger and bigger and men started getting larger and larger and violent and threatening in a way that it never felt right to me, but it definitely it affected how I thought thought of men in the world. It made me feel like my masculinity was inferior or not up to par with the the manliness that that the world was expecting of me, which I guess was good. It made me a little more sensitive to folks who did not fit into that mold, but it was still there. It's still prevalent. It definitely affected my thought of what a man is. How do you, and it sounds like you're still kind of coming to terms with it, like how do you come to terms with that and say like, look, my masculinity is as valid as Rambos or the Terminators or, you know, I'm trying to think of action stars yeah. that are not Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone, yeah. but you get the the gist. Yeah, well, the cool thing is today, the internet has made that possible. It's it's broken all those things apart. There are so many different definitions of what masculinity can be that it becomes very easy to find your niche. That's exciting. It's depressing to see people still battling over it. It's frustrating to see that people are fighting to to create a singular identity for men or for anyone that they're defining people in a particular way. I understand why folks want to do it. They want to do it because it's easy. Mm-hmm. They want to know when they meet a stranger what to expect Mm -hmm. just based on the way they look. And you can't do that anymore. You can't even identify a person anymore what pronouns to use as as Twitter is uh, talking about every day. It's it's always a constant thing. You can't do that anymore. It's scary for some people because it's unhinging their understanding of reality, understanding of the world, and they don't know how to deal with it because it then forces them to question who they are as people. So for me, it's, it's, been, it's been good. I tell people that I learned how to be a man, quote unquote, the stereotypical man when I went to college. I fell in with a bunch of dudes who were very stereotypical bros. That was my reality during my college years. Hyper-masculine behavior, punching each other, and just all the, you know, drinking too much and being rude and <laughs> violent and sexually aggressive and all that shit was there. Before that, I was not that way. I don't think I was raised that way at all. My parents raised me more like what a daughter would be, how a daughter would be okay. raised, I feel like, to be to be diminutive and respectful and quiet and to to be cautious with your appearance and to be polite and all those things. That was my childhood. I went to college. I got the the stereotypical man 
this was late 90s too, 96 to 2000 when man if you got to talk about when things were toxic yeah that was i mean britney spears she put out yeah. <laughs> that was britney the spears had the era. song all right it's the limp biscuit era it's the giant puffy jackets the men just with the threatening postures in music videos it's when women were being you know asked to wear pants with zippers that are like two inches <laughs> yep. tall it was all of that when i was becoming an adult was during the middle of all that and i went down that path for a while and when i came out the other side of it it's like my god what what was that about i'm so grateful to be back more to where i was when i was younger with a more nuanced view of what a man is what shifted having relationships with other people also when i was in high school i was the athletic trainer for the girls basketball team i was one of two kid two uh male identifying students in the entire school who had girls varsity letters on their letter jackets <laughs> because of my role with the basketball team i was around girls all the time i am more comfortable around women than i am i am around men i always have been so i think it was just those guys from college graduating and moving away and letting me sort of return to myself i think that's what brought me back that's how i see it and also getting to teach and getting to see how kids are so different today or they're really not it's just that they have the opportunity now to be be different. Right. right. That's been really valuable for me, and it's it's affected me as well. So you just said that you feel more comfortable around, around women, but I know of mm -hmm. you through Grawlix Saves the World, which is it's four straight white guys. Four, yeah, three straight white guys and their straight white producer. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it is and, the most cis. <laughs> and it is, to me, it is brotastic but not brotastic in like a joe rogan kind of way it's yeah, brotastic right. in a like sort of very warm inviting like goofy nerdy kind of way yeah and i i discovered you guys through actually adam's book which okay. i, I yeah, picked yeah, up yeah, and yeah. read and really liked and i was like oh this guy has a podcast let me check it out and the first episode i listened to there was one where ben was talking about privilege and it uh -huh. really stuck with me. And I, how did you meet these guys? And how did you get the idea to do the podcast? Or how did you get roped in as producer? So I was producing a podcast called Denver Diatribe. This was 10 years ago. Uh, we were doing a hyper-local news podcast way ahead of our time. But that's an idea that is just barely starting to emerge. So we were way ahead of our time. But we were also one of the only podcasts in the entire city of Denver at that point. Andrew Orvidal reached out to us to help him start producing a podcast version of a storytelling show that he produced called The Narrators. So we started recording that live show for him, and I immediately fell in love with The Narrators. It's just an incredible, incredible show where you've got people telling true stories on a monthly theme. I, I now produce and co-host the show, by the way. That show is is amazing because you've got all these people just telling their truth. It's always a surprise. We don't screen the storytellers or tell them how to tell their stories or edit the way they do it. So we always get lots of surprises there. But so anyway, Andrew started producing that podcast for him. And Andrew is a creative machine he's just this mastermind of like coming up with new ideas all the time he's always coming up with something new so he asked me to start helping produce another podcast for him called the unicorn which was about sex and relationships we did that for a while and that was right before andrew and ben and adam they got their television show those who can't so 
Andrew left to LA for a few years to go work on that TV show. And when they came back, they, they came back to me. I also work with Adam for a high plains comedy festival. That's his comedy festival. That's, that's how I met Adam. And Ben and I, we, we've, we've run in circles, but really this podcast, the garlic saves the world is where he and I have interacted with each other the most, where we've actually got to know, know one another. And I, yeah, it's, it's been very interesting to, to be part of it. They came back to town after making their TV show. They wanted to start a podcast. They, they reached out to me because they were, I was the producer, the podcast producer they knew in town and the, the rest is history. The show, we didn't know what it was going to be at the beginning. They just knew they wanted to start a podcast. So there are, there are old test episodes where is a lot of navel gazing where they're literally just the episode is them asking the question, what is this going to be? And I was trying to mix it into a thing. And then after a while, it wasn't really going anywhere. We couldn't figure it out. And Ben came up with the idea of what if we do challenges, if we pose challenges to one another uh, that we do to better ourselves, to self-improvement sort of stuff. The Grolic Saves the World is just one of the 300,000 name ideas that we had on the table. The Grolics is the name of their comedy group right. their comedy trio so that's where that comes from the saves the world part was meant to be a tongue-in-cheek thing but we sort of worked it into the premise of the podcast right. and yeah it's one of the few things that i do with a group of men like that that's not a typical situation for me then the narrators that that show when we produce it one other man is involved but the and it's four other women that are part of that show high plains the executive producer is a woman the the volunteer director is a woman there that we as a trio do a lot of the production work for that and i i feel very comfortable working with them this is my one my manly <laughs> broy enterprise it's very and I, and i do enjoy it because those guys are older we all are we're all in our early 40s and i think we've all come through that that personal evolution of figuring out our own masculinity in a way that lets us now talk about things in a more earnest way in a more honest way in a more nuanced way than we used to right than we might have done when when the four of us were all 20 it would be a very different podcast if we did it back then and that's that's what i'm drawn to is the fact that like the podcast that we're doing right now, it's very plainly stated is about masculinity and personal evolution and growing up. Whereas what, what you fellas are doing, it's sort of darting around in shadows. It, it's very much present as a topic, but it's not obviously present as the topic. Yeah. Um, but all yeah. of the conversations that you have, all of the things you do have some basis in, you know, self-improvement or unlearning, which I find really interesting. And also, I think just the way that you all interact with each other is like, I want to be the black queer Grolics. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, right, the, right, right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be the Tito of that group, mm-hmm. but yeah, <laughs> it's warm in a way that's not toxically masculine, you know, to use a way overused terminology. It's guy ish, but not mm-hmm. like reprehensibly yep. guy ish. I think the podcast is. It's interestingly subversive as far as the things that they'll get into, the ways they'll approach things. They're all comedians. First and foremost, we all agree, funny funny comes first. But when we have an opportunity to address an important topic or to get into something a little more heavy, they don't typically shy away from it, which I love about them. They are brave and courageous. They will go into topics that 
other comedians might stray away from, especially Ben. Ben Roy will he will throw himself on any sword that's presented to him for the sake of personal experimentation and comedy. He will go there. Andrew is the ideas guy. He's the one that comes up with the wild interpretation of the situation. He's the one that has the crazy non sequiturs. He's the one that puts the more interesting twist on it. And Adam's the more balanced in between the two of them. He's the more measured individual. He's the planner. So their dynamic together is really fascinating. They are great examples of different types of masculinity. I mean, you have Ben Roy, he loves jujitsu and motorcycles and he's covered in tattoos and he loves MMA fighting and all this hyper masculine stuff. But as a person, he is not. And he talks about it a lot that those two, he's constantly struggling with that aspect of his identity, that he wanted to be manly. And he, he does these things that reassure that for him. But but ultimately, he's not that way. And Andrew has always been a very queer positive individual. One of the things that really struck me about the narrators when I first started going to that show, when I started helping him produce that podcast, was how I, I, I remember a night we had a transgender a storyteller and there was somebody that just gave the slightest the slightest sneer of disgust and Andrew just lit into them in a way that I've never seen him do before or since on anybody. And I was like, okay, this is really fascinating. This is really cool. And then Adam, I mean, man, Adam, he's such a complicated human being. He's so smart. He's, he's been through some, a major tragedy in his life. They all, they all have, I should, I should point that out as human beings. They've all had such interesting life experiences that really they they tell them how to handle the world and they make them very interesting to listen to especially because when you know all those little things about them andrew grew up in a hyper-religious household and a frankly oppressive household as far as the religion that he grew up in ben was abused uh by a priest and adam lost his sister those you know you you do see it's three white guys three straight white guys they're all dads they're all in their 40s. On the surface, on paper, they are that stereotype. But then when you start getting into their life experiences, it becomes, it's a lot more to yeah. it. So it's been, it's fun to work with them. When we get to go, my favorite episodes are always the ones where they really go into something heavy. And they bring they bring something to it, and they're actually trying to teach people. Yeah. I, I, I also like too. the ones where they're completely absurd, and they just goof off, and it's, <laughs> it's a silly situation. So It's a good chemistry. I, I, I love that. So... Now back to you as as Ron. Yeah. What are you still working on in terms of your journey? What is it that you're still trying to figure out? What are you trying to settle within yourself? I really love making podcasts. I love doing it. It's a thing I've been doing, as I said, for 10 years now. It has never been a very financially lucrative endeavor for me. I've made money on it. I, I've done okay. It's a piece of my my freelance income, but is not the whole thing. And I think about all the time if that's a place I should go, if that I should be taking the skills that I have and the things that I know and bring them to other people, to other podcasts, to other voices. That's something I think about all the time. I'm getting older. I have one kid in high school and another kid in eighth grade. So the clock is ticking <laughs> to where I will have an empty nest. And I think a lot about what that will look like, how I will lead my life differently when I'm not immediately responsible for two other human beings, and if I should be trying something different. I'm constantly trying to unlearn things that I find toxic 
in the world that have stuck with me. I'm trying to get it to a point to where I don't have the voice that's telling me something different. I've just got the one true voice that I feel good about. I don't know if I'll ever get there. And maybe I shouldn't because then I could become blind to everything else. I'm not sure. It's weird being in your 40s, right? Did you have a midlife crisis? Hitting 40 was hard for me. I think for me, hitting 40 was different than it is for most people because I, for a lot of reasons, didn't picture myself at 40. I didn't think I was going to make it to 40. Yeah. So I got there and I was just like, huh, okay, like I'm 40 years old and I still feel pretty young and and I'm healthy and I have a lot more self-awareness than I had, you know, even a couple of years ago. What am I going to do with this? And I think that's translated into doing this and some of the other stuff that I do. But I also considered 40 to be kind of like older and stodgier and 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 um <laughs> well yeah do you remember spencer's gifts when we were kids spencer's gifts used to have the you're over the hill all the greeting cards in black for turning 40 that was like you're halfway dead yeah. you already passed your peak and you're now on the downward slide to the end of your life which i don't um, feel like i mean my body hurts it's a lot not more. <laughs> everything aches a little oh, bit yeah. yeah bodies are a little creakier but as far as how much life we have left to live, it's not necessarily true. Right. I remember thinking by the time you're 40, you should either be dead or f- have it figured out, you know? And I don't have it figured out yet. I don't have the world solved. I still have a lot of personal growth to do. So it messed with my head big time when I was 40. Also, my mom died in 2009 of, of cancer. She was pretty young. I was 29 when she died. So I called my father on my 40th birthday and I said, hey, I'd love to hear the story of my birth. I don't know the the story of my birth. I, I heard somebody else say that this would be a fun thing to ask your parents to tell the story of your birth. I didn't know it. So I asked my dad and he just didn't remember. He didn't remember anything about it. He remembered nothing at all. And I, I just remember feeling like I lost my mom already. That was hard. And I've lost all those stories. I've lost that big piece of who I am. And there are things about me that I'll never get back about my childhood because my dad just doesn't remember. He didn't care. He didn't have that focus. My dad, classic, stereotypical man. He's a chauvinist. I could talk shit about him because he doesn't know how to text message, much le- much less listen to a okay. podcast. I love my father, but he sees the world in in terms of very black and white gender roles. And so all the stuff that a mother would know, he does not. Gotcha. And it just put me on this weird spiral to start off my 40s that I'm still kind of climbing out of. I'm still trying to figure that out. It's an interesting thing. Aging in general is an interesting thing. And I think for a lot of folks, 40 is where it kind of, where you have a what the fuck moment, where it's kind of like, okay, this is where I am, and these are all of the things that I have not done yet, and here's all the stuff that I don't know, and is this supposed to be like this? Right, right. Yeah. I've also reached an age where I don't think anyone expects me to change anymore, you know? My kids, they buy me Star Wars stuff and bicycle stuff and beer for holidays. I've sort of been locked into those stereotypes of my identity. And it's fun for me to think that I get to change it again. That's been the midlife crisis for me. Where have I become stuck in my identity and what can I do to change it? Where can I tweak it? 
little upgrades because I'm not done. We might be simulations, but we're still getting constant upgrades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not pieces of hardware that do not change over time. We evolve as people. And deciding where you want to evolve when you now have a very clear sense of, oh, the time is limited, <clears throat> it makes you think about the world very differently. You articulated that very, very well. I, I think I am in a similar uh, thought process there. Where it's yeah. like, I don't you know, know how much time there is left, but I, I feel like there are some changes that need to be made or I'd like to become a, a different version of me or a better version of me in that time, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will also say, though, that there's something beautiful about people who find themselves and are confident in themselves. And I don't know if it's resignation or acceptance, but they are who they are. They have their job, they do their thing, and they're happy in their life because it is how it is. I do think I I make myself unhappy by wanting to change and wanting to make myself better. Whereas if I could just accept my fate, that could be okay too. I do love seeing those people. I've got a a soft spot for the company man, if that makes sense. (laughs) I envy those people. Yeah, I I do envy those people that can just stay in the thing that they're doing and do it that the same way year in and year out and it seems to make them happy they're content with it that's cool i could get into that i'm not there it's yeah, not who i, I mean, am that's a level but... of zen that i don't think exists in this body <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah. So. yeah one thing that i can think of that we didn't cover was apparently your doobie hauserish oh yeah um <laughs> that's right yes yeah, so i did graduate from high school when i was 15 i skipped the fifth and sixth grade and It's fascinating you bring that up from the context of privilege. I constantly wonder now, in hindsight, because I grew up in a neighborhood, primarily folks of Mexican descent. I grew up in Roswell, New Mexico. That's my weird little hometown. (laughs) And the school I went to, I was the whitest kid. And I stood out in a way that was pretty distinctive in that school. And I do wonder if the gifted identity that I was given by my teachers, if there was more to it than just my intelligence. Whatever the case, I was a smart kid, no question about it, I was definitely smart. I skipped fifth and sixth grade, I went straight to middle school, and then I graduated when I was 15, and then I went to college and I broke it all. (laughs) I made myself stupid. I, I unlearned everything I learned. But being younger was interesting. I have queer friends who say that when I tell my story that it it reminds them of their own queer identity because I was a closeted kid. I was in the closet about my age. I didn't want my peers to know that I was younger because they would judge me and treat me differently. So I kept it a secret. I was big enough. I was was tall enough and large enough. uh, Did you not present younger? I didn't present younger. Yes, I could pass. (laughs) I could pass for the normal age. So people didn't didn't think of me that way unless I told them they didn't know I was a younger kid and I kept it a secret I'd worked very hard to try and be normal to be like all the other kids to not be noticed inadvertently a lot of my friends from high school my dear friends they came out after we were done I think we were all in different types of closets as far as our identities I also had friends who were they were living the my parents want me to be a scientist life but actually, I just want to go brew beer in Portland, uh, in Eugene, Oregon, sort of life. We were all hiding from some from the identity that the world wanted to put upon right. us. It was different than who we really were. And yeah, I think that has really informed me as far as how other people operate, that we're all wearing masks. Everybody's trying on different things, trying to present themselves in a way that might not necessarily be who they are. And it's so liberating and freeing to just be honest about yep. it, to let it go. Am I all the way there? 
with every aspect of my life? Nope. <laughs> but it does feel good when you can. Baby steps. So yeah, baby steps, baby <laughs> steps. So yes, I graduated from high school very young, took a year off, came to Colorado after graduating high school and came unraveled because I didn't know how to be an adult. I moved to University of Colorado when I was just barely 17. When I started college, I was a sober virgin and didn't know how the world worked at all. And then I was dropped into the number one party school in America. Oh. So, so yeah, that's the high school piece. I probably should have told that. I should have told that story yeah, earlier. Well, maybe as far it, as the fit, either, but... either we'll do a part two, or you know, I need to come <laughs> to Denver, or you need to come to Brooklyn, and we need to have a couple of beers, and 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 I get to hear all of the the stories of the rampant craziness of Ron Doyle's college years. While you stay tuned for a potential follow-up conversation from Ron and I, make sure you follow him on socials. He's at RonDoyleCO on Twitter. He's just Ron Doyle on Instagram. And if you can, check out his website, RonDoyle.CO, for even more information. And, of course, I couldn't close this out without a hearty recommendation for the Grawlix Saves the World, the podcast. You can find it everywhere you enjoy podcasts and very likely in the same place you're enjoying this one. Thanks, Ron, of course, for offering up your thoughts, your time, and your honesty. I sincerely look forward to the next time we chat. I look forward also to hanging out when I eventually get to Denver, which has been on my list for quite a while. And speaking of Denver, I want to give a big shout out to Patrick and Brian, two awesome people I'm fortunate to know who work at Denver's most renowned independent record store, Twist and Shout. Make sure you check them out. Hey, y'all. It's me again. Just reminding you to please smash that subscribe button if you want to keep listening to this show. Leave a comment, rate us, whatever you can to push us up in the rankings. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, if you love the podcast, if you would like to be on the podcast, if you know somebody who is interested in being on the podcast or who would be a good fit to talk about masculinity, please feel free to reach out to me via my social media channels. I am on Instagram as DetoxPodGuy, and I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can even drop me an email old school style detoxpod at gmail.com. By the way, not hating on anybody who still sends emails. I am old school proudly and I send emails all the time. Uh, Detoxicity is produced and hosted by myself, Mike Joseph. Uh, The music for this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Calvin Williams. The logo for this show was designed by uh, Jacob Block. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration to create this podcast. Uh, I thank you all for listening and hope that you're all keeping yourselves and each other safe out there. Take care. Peace. Peace.